This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, June 12th. I'm Samantha Sherris. And joining today's podcast is Benedict Rogers. Benedict is with Hong Kong Watch as well as an advisor to the Stop the Uyghur Genocide campaign. We discuss the U.S.-China trade relationship, his book, China Nexus, 30 Years In and Around the Chinese Communist Party's Tyranny, and much more. We'll get to my conversation with Benedict Rogers right after this. Feeling overwhelmed by the crisis at our southern border? Then get up to speed with a new season of Heritage Explains. Our first episode with Heritage Border expert Laura Rees is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Joining today's show is Benedict Rogers, the co-founder and chief executive of Hong Kong Watch. Benedict is also an advisor to the Stop the Uyghur Genocide Campaign and author of China Nexus, 30 Years in and Around the Chinese Communist Party's Tyranny. Thanks for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I want to dive right in and talk about the trade between the U.S. and China. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, the United States imports more from China than from any other country. And the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis reported earlier this year that the total number of imports in 2022 from China into the U.S. amounted to over 536 billion dollars. Now, recently, we've heard of this idea of de-risking or diversifying from China. What does this look like? And what are your thoughts on these ideas? Well, I think the uh, the, the imbalance of, of trade is uh, extremely concerning, particularly when we're talking about a regime that uh, is now um, credibly accused of uh, a genocide against the Uyghur people, it has uh, totally broken an international treaty in regard to Hong Kong uh, and dismantled completely the promised freedoms and autonomy for Hong Kong. Uh, and it's committing other very serious atrocity crimes uh, against other groups uh, uh, within China, but also it's complicit with uh, atrocities in other regimes, particularly North Korea and, and Burma. Uh, and of course, it's increasingly threatening Taiwan. Uh, and plus, it's a regime that... Um, uh, hid and uh, lied to the world over uh, the virus, uh, which became the COVID nineteen global pandemic. So to be to have such a um, a high dependency on that one country uh, for for imports, I think is is a very dangerous situation to be in. Uh, and I, I hope that the United States and other countries as well will diversify, and that means uh, producing more at home, but also uh, uh, investing in other countries that are less risky. And I, I think there are plenty of countries where uh, we could uh, strengthen our supply chains, whether it's uh, emerging economies in Southeast Asia like Indonesia, um, long-established uh, economies like Japan and Korea, perhaps doing more with Taiwan, although obviously there are risks around Taiwan if, if uh, a, a war happens. But we, we should be diversifying our supply chains. We've also heard of this expression or this phrase decoupling. What's the difference between, you know, diversifying versus decoupling versus de-risking? Mm. Well, I think decoupling is sort of, in an idealistic sense, probably the right thing to do, but it's probably uh, much more difficult to achieve because of uh, the long-standing economic relationship with China. It's it's almost impossible to uh, completely pull out um, uh, altogether. And so um, diversifying is about uh, reducing our dependency on China and uh, uh, trading more with 
with other partners. Um, and de-risking is about saying, okay, we're not going to stop uh, trade with China, but how can we reduce the uh, risks, whether it's um, ethical risks of, for example, our pension funds being invested in Chinese companies that are complicit with uh, atrocities, uh, or, or whether it's the financial risk of, of doing business in an increasingly unstable economy uh, in China. As we've been talking about, just for the dollar amount of imports that, that we have from China, the relationship that we have is very intertwined. It's very extensive. With that being said, it doesn't seem like just walking away from China in terms of trading with them is on the table right now. So with that in mind, how can the U.S. trade with China ethically? Well, I think there's a, a combination of steps that should be taken. Uh, firstly, uh, our, our pension funds should really look closely at where they're investing uh, our money and uh, withdrawing that money from and reducing investment in uh, Chinese companies that are either directly uh, committing or facilitating atrocities or indirectly complicit with that. And I think the second thing uh, that we should be doing is is saying, and I'm not sure how much this applies to the United States, it certainly applies to the United Kingdom, we should be um, saying, okay, we're, we're going to continue trading with China uh, but we should not have Chinese investment uh, in our uh, strategically vital um, uh, sectors. Um, uh, and I know the U.S. Has, has made some progress on this in terms of banning companies like uh, Huawei and, and Hikvision. Uh, the U.K. has made uh, less progress, although taken some steps. Um, but it's about looking at the, the critical um, sectors that are vital for either our uh, critical infrastructure or on national security, and saying let's uh, let's not have uh, investment in those sectors from companies that are, are linked to the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, definitely. And just along the lines of of things that are made in China, it feels like you could literally flip over anything, um, you know, in this office right now, and it would probably be say, you know, made in China. Mm. And with that comes usually lower prices. So. Where do you find that balance? Where do you draw the line between being able to buy things from China that are probably cheaper, probably, you know, more people can afford to buy against the fact that it's also, you know, for the U.S. especially, it's our greatest adversary mm. and is a growing threat to, um, you know, to countries throughout the world? Well, it is a, a challenge. And I think, mm. um, you know, for a long time now, we've become accustomed to to cheap goods. And I think mm. we probably need to, um, th there probably needs to be a, a consumer uh, mindset change. We have to get used to the, the idea that uh, at least for a period of time, uh, goods will be more expensive if, if we go down this path of, uh, of decoupling or de-risking. I, I think that the crucial things we should be looking at are products that are made by slave labor. And the U.S. has uh, taken some steps uh, on, on their side, like other countries, to do the same. Um, but making sure that when we're importing goods, uh, they can be proven uh, that they're not made by uh, Uyghur forced labor. Um, and I think the second thing we should be doing is, is looking at products that could be used by the Chinese Communist Party regime for surveillance purposes. So some of the technology that, uh, that we import um, and that means looking to other sources of, of that te technology. But yes, it will come at a price. And I think we, we have to uh, be willing to accept that. In terms of the companies that are doing business with the Chinese Communist Party, 
what types of incentives do you think would be necessary for them to start either leaving China completely or just start, you know, at, at a basic level, just start pulling back a little bit, um, you know, here and there from working directly with China or even in China? Well, I think one of the biggest incentives uh, right now is actually coming from the Chinese Communist Party itself because um, uh, it has uh, just produced a new espionage law that uh, essentially will make it almost impossible for companies to do due diligence. Uh, uh, the levels of transparency uh, are, are um, reducing dramatically. Uh, and so the ability to for companies to assess uh, their risk uh, in China is becoming much much more difficult. Um, at the same time, Xi Jinping is pursuing a, an economic policy that is uh, really going after um, entrepreneurs and uh, and, and uh, private enterprise. So it's a much less attractive uh, market uh, to do business with than it perhaps appeared uh, a decade or, or two ago. Um, and I think that ought to be the biggest incentive for. Uh, for companies um, is the, the the risk that they face and the lack of ability to do due diligence um, uh, must be pretty off-putting. Mm -hmm. Now, the relationship, the trade relationship specifically between China and the U.S. didn't happen overnight, right? And especially throughout the world, China's role um, with being, you know, a, a big exporter and being able to produce these cheap goods didn't happen overnight. So can you walk us through kind of how China became such a global leader in terms of trade? And if there's anything that you would suggest um, either to the U.S. or the U.K. Um, or other global leaders in terms of how you can kind of lessen that role of China? Well, I think China became such a, a, a global economic power um, with, with, a, with a lot of help from, from us, from the United States and from the West. Uh, and that was particularly uh, with the admittance of China into the World Trade Organization, the establishment of most favored uh, trading nation uh, status, and, and then PNTR. And at the time, I, I, and I shared this view, um, at the time, it was a very different China. It was a China that was opening and um, growing economically, but also a regime that appeared to be much more pragmatic and appeared to be allowing some degree of um, not, I wouldn't call it liberalization, but perhaps relaxation of more space for civil society, for uh, certain uh, limited uh, freedoms. And there was a, a sense of optimism that if we bring China into the global economy, um, that will uh, lead to further political uh, liberalization and reform. And clearly, we were proven wrong. The exact opposite happened. And I think the Chinese government, once they'd achieved their um, uh, economic superpower status, uh, then reverted to the, their natural character, which is much more repressive uh, and, uh, and really cracked down on those limited freedoms. What can we do about this now? Well, ideally, uh, it, it would... It Certainly the option of removing them from the WTO uh, and changing uh, that uh, uh, trading status uh, should be looked at. But I recognize that that's uh, extremely difficult to do. And it could only ever be done, I think, together with uh, allies. And unfortunately, in Europe, uh, there's a diversity of opinion regarding China. And so it's very hard to, to see that happening. Um, I think the, the best things we can do are to, uh, as we've been discussing, reduce our 
dependency on China, um, use uh, sanctions where appropriate as, as a, a, a punitive measure for uh, the behavior of, of the regime, um, and strengthen our, our trading relationships with, with other countries. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you have a book out titled China Nexus, 30 Years in and Around the Chinese Communist Party's Tyranny. I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your book. Uh, from my understanding, there are 10 ideas that you mention in your book. Um, could you talk about those and just more broadly about your book? Sure. Well, it's a, it's a book that um, is an attempt to look at, uh, from a human rights angle, all of the Chinese regime's uh, uh, repression. Um, I, and when I was thinking about the book, I, I, I thought initially, well, there are thousands of books on China. What, what can I really add that's uh, new or uh, of value? Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that although there are many books on China, um, there are very, very few, indeed, if any, that put all the pieces of the picture together. So the book looks at everything from the crackdown on freedom in Hong Kong to the genocide of the Uyghurs, uh, atrocities in Tibet, uh, the persecution of Christians, um, forced organ harvesting, uh, the crackdown on, on lawyers and dissidents and civil society and journalists mm -hmm. uh, across China, um, but also the um, relationship between China and North Korea uh, and uh, China and uh, Burma, um, the threats to Taiwan and also the threats to our own uh, freedoms uh, in in the United States and the UK, China's uh, the Chinese Communist Party's campaign of influence and infiltration and intimidation well beyond its its borders. In terms of the ten ideas that uh, uh, that I uh, outline in the final chapter of the book, uh, which looks at the international community's response to these challenges, and I talk to experts uh, both in the United States uh, and in the UK. Uh, but also across Europe, um, Australia, Canada, Japan, and Korea, and India, because I didn't want it to just be a Western uh, mm. lens. I wanted to get uh, perspectives from some of China's neighbors that are also feeling these challenges. Um, and I, I won't go through all 10 recommendations, partly because of time and partly because I hope people will, will read, read the, the book. book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but broadly, they're in three categories. The mm. first is, what can we do to uh, end impunity, ensure accountability for the Chinese Communist Party's uh, crimes, and that includes uh, the use of sanctions as a punitive uh, measure, because I think the Chinese Communist Party only understands one language, and that's uh, strength. And um, uh, unless there are consequences for its actions, it's just going to be emboldened uh, to be even more repressive at home and aggressive abroad. Um, the second category of ideas is what can we do to help uh, people who need to get out, who, who need a lifeline, uh, maybe in, in great danger. Um, and also, what can we do to empower dissent, whether that's within China or among the diaspora? Um, and then thirdly, uh, ideas for how to strengthen our values of, of freedom um, in our own societies and in the international rules-based order and counter the Chinese Communist Party's uh, growing influence. I'll definitely make sure to include a link to your book so Thank our you. audience members who are interested can take a look at it, hopefully buy it and read it. Um, just before we go, I wanted to circle back to your role with Hong Kong Watch as well as you know being an advisor to the Stop the Uyghur Genocide Campaign. If you could just walk us through some of the work that you do um, for both Hong Kong Watch and the Stop the Uyghur Genocide Campaign. Yes. Um, so I co-founded Hong Kong Watch uh, five and a half years ago now. 
Um, because I had lived in Hong Kong previously, actually for the first five years after the handover from 1997 to 2002, and then I had seen uh, Hong Kong's freedoms uh, uh, being dismantled, starting with uh, the protests in 2014 that became known as the Umbrella Movement. Mm -hmm. And when I saw what was happening, I, uh, as somebody who had lived in Hong Kong, started to speak out initially in a personal capacity. And then by 2017, I knew that we needed a, an organization to do this. One, one person on, on my own was, it was not enough. So Hong Kong Watch um, is uh, both a research and advocacy organization. We uh, uh, research and compile um, in-depth reports on uh, different aspects of the deteriorating human rights situation uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, we provide re regular uh, shorter briefings as well. Uh, and then we advocate for uh, policy actions. Um, we in initially were founded uh, in London. Um, and of course, the UK has a, a special responsibility for Hong Kong, given our, our history. Um, but almost from the start, we also began advocacy in Washington, D.C., um, in Ottawa, because uh, Canada has an important role, particularly having a very large Hong Kong uh, diaspora community in, in Canada. Uh, we're very active at the European Union uh, level, um, and at the UN, uh, and even with countries like Australia, we've we've uh, developed engagement. Um, and uh, a new aspect of our work um, since 2020, when the crackdown really intensified, and many uh, people started to leave Hong Kong, um, has been um, uh, working with the Hong Kong, the growing Hong Kong community in the UK and Canada in particular. Uh, to help them integrate into uh, their new lives uh, in those countries, to understand uh, their freedoms uh, in the UK and, and Canada and how they can engage with our political systems. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the Stop Uyghur Genocide campaign, um, it's a really important uh, group that was founded by uh, an amazing friend of mine who's a, a Uyghur, uh, actually a, originally a Uyghur singer who's become an activist because of the situation, uh, Rahima Mahmoud. Um, and it's a group that uh, aims to raise awareness, keep, keep attention on uh, the appalling human rights violations that the Uyghurs are facing, which is increasingly recognized as, as a genocide. Um, and I'm on their advisory group. So uh, I try to support Rahima and, and the team there in, in what they're doing. Great. Well, Benedict Rogers, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to have you on. Thank you very much for having me. And that's going to do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Daily Signals interview edition. If you haven't gotten a chance, make sure you subscribe to the Daily Signal wherever you get your podcasts and help us reach even more listeners by leaving a five-star rating and review. We read and appreciate all of your feedback. Thanks again for listening to my interview with Benedict Rogers. We hope you have a great day and we'll be back with you all this afternoon. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.